And while you're standing, grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, if you don't have a Bible, that's all right. We've provided one for you in the seat pocket in front of you. Um, there are some Bibles. And if you're using one of those Bibles, we're going to be on page 588. Um, so that should be real easy for you to find. And we're in 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to start this morning in verse 1. And uh, man, I always hate it when those kids go. It's just like this, you know, <laughs> there's this energy that just leaves the room when they go. So, all right, if you found 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to start there. And this is what scripture tells us. It says, uh, it says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, in, uh, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now listen, I want you to pay real careful attention to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused you to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And that's what God's word says and, we, and the church said. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Well, the Bible says that on the first day of the week, as dawn was breaking, that a group of women who had followed Jesus approached the tomb. Now, they were going there to embalm their deceased friend, their murdered friend, their master. But when they approached the tomb, they saw that the giant stone that had been laid there to seal the tomb and the, and the Roman seal that had been placed on it was gone. It had been rolled away. And that the soldiers that had been assigned to guard that tomb had been knocked out cold. And more importantly, they noticed that that tomb was empty. And angels in shining robes, sitting inside the tomb, spoke to these words to those shocked women. You know what they said? They said, hey, hey, ladies, why are you looking for dead people among the living? Because he is not here. He has risen. Let me tell you something. Let me make something perfectly crystal clear to you this morning. That nobody, no one can call themselves a Christian who denies the actual physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. All true believers are absolutely clear and accept this as historical fact. If someone claims to be a Christian, but they try to deny the resurrection of Christ, or they interpret it in a mere philosophical or metaphorical or mythical term, that person is not in any sense of the word a Christian. To believe Christ literally rose from the grave does not make you crazy. Now, come on, Mark. Everybody knows dead people don't live again. But, but to believe that Christ rose from the dead should not make you feel like you're crazy. And, and let me encourage you, believers, you should not feel obligated to talk of the resurrection of Jesus in almost embarrassed whispers. 
Because the, the re- resurrection, and I'm going to stand by the statement, the resurrection has as much credibility as any other event in all of recorded history. It's not the Loch Ness Monster. It's not Bigfoot. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has historical credibility. And, and Thomas Arnold, for example, he was the one-time chair of modern history at Oxford University. The Oxford University is not a hotbed of conspiracy theory, okay? This is a legitimate, a legitimate university in England. And he said this. He said, I have been used to, for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of, of those that have been written about, of those who have written about them. Now listen to this statement. And he says, And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by any better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Some pretty credible testimony right there. Volumes have been written on this subject by both Christian and secular writers, both intellectual saints and frustrated skeptics. In fact, sometimes books have been written by skeptics who, in, in trying to refute the, the testimony and the historicity of, the, of Christ's resurrection, wound up becoming saints. Kind of tripped up, up when they examined the evidence for the resurrection. Read the books of Simon Greenleaf. He was, a, he was a former agnostic and one of the founders of Harvard Law School. Or of Josh McDowell. He was also a former agnostic. And, and he became a man, however, after studying the resurrection, he became a man who was dedicated to defending the resurrection as a historical fact. In fact, as our gift to you today, we have um, free copies of Josh McDowell's book, More Than a Carpenter, which kind of goes into some of the details of this historical evidence. They're free to you. We have them out there on the, on the bookshelf in the, uh, in the foyer. So please feel free to take one of those um, as you leave today. But with all of that historical and legal evidence that we could point to and say, you know, we have, we have every confidence to believe that Jesus rose again. To those of you who are the elect, to those of you who are chosen by God, a far more sure, listen to me, a far more sure and reliable testimony than even apologetics, historical legal arguments has been given to you. And that is that testimony of the indwelling Holy Spirit who testifies inside of us that Christ is risen, that we are his and that he dwells within us. While all believers embrace the resurrection as a vital, theological, and and irrefutable historical fact, my fear is that many believers underestimate the fact that Jesus has risen. They underestimate it. What I mean by that is, while we would all assert the fact that He's risen, many of us may not be able to articulate why that's a big deal. I came here this morning to tell you it's a big deal. It's a big deal that Jesus rose from the grave. For example, if I were to ask most of the people in this room, why are you saved? Most of you would reply, because Jesus died for me. And guess what? You wouldn't be wrong. You wouldn't be wrong at all. We, we absolutely know this to be true, that we are saved because Jesus died for us. The whole basis of our faith is that the cross of Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God, the just wrath of God, by allowing all of our sins to be placed on his innocent shoulders, that he should be punished 
and not us. But we might not have considered that had Christ only died, had Christ only died, he would have been proven to be an imposter. Oh, careful, Mark. Thin ice. No, no, no. Listen to me. I'm not backing off this. If Jesus had only died and not risen, he would have been proven to be an imposter. And you and I would still be shackled in our guilt and sin. Every one of us. See, even though Jesus worked miracles, and even though he taught amazing truths that blew the minds of those that uh, that heard him, if he is still dead, he was no Messiah. He was no Savior. He, in fact, was no God if he is still dead. It's an unsustainable... Listen to me if you're trying to kind of bridge the gap between confessing the resurrection and, and, and you know, believing what the Scripture says about it and, and trying to embrace what the culture feels about it. It is an unsustainable cop-out to say that Jesus Christ was a great teacher. It's an unsustainable cop-out. But, but if you say that he's a great teacher but he didn't rise, you can't hold that. That's a house of cards. It doesn't stand. If this is true, as C.S. Lewis famously pointed out, Most of what he said has to be categorized, if he didn't rise, as either outright lies or the ravings of a madman. If he didn't rise. See, it's, it's not the death of Christ. A lot of people die. A lot of people die for saying some really stupid things. But it's not the death of Christ that gives him credibility. It is the death coupled with his resurrection that gives him credibility. The life of a dead Messiah holds absolutely no inspiration, no value. All a dead, the life of a dead Messiah holds is embarrassment, disappointment, and well-deserved mockery. And for those of us who have trusted him, those of us who have staked this, our lives in the fact that this and what this book says about that resurrection is true, oh my goodness, if he isn't risen, the situation is much, much more dire. It's terrible. Paul said this, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he said, if Christ has not been raised, guess what, guys? You can go on home because your faith is futile and you're still in your sins if Christ has not risen. But I got good news for you. Can you handle it? Y'all ready for some good news? The Bible asserts in the strongest terms possible that he is risen. It asserts it in the strongest terms possible. When the New Testament writers spoke of the cross, an empty tomb was always assumed. They didn't just talk about the cross as one thing and the tomb as another thing. When they spoke of the cross, the empty tomb was always assumed. For example, in the verse we just read earlier, I don't know if you're paying attention, but Peter says in verse 2 of chapter 1, he says that we are saved by the sprinkling with his blood. What does that speak of? speaks of his death on the cross, right? But in the very next verse, not another chapter, the very next verse, he says that we're born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Come on, Peter. Get your theology straight. Which is it? The death or the resurrection? Well, the answer, of course, is both. Or more accurately, in the minds of the apostolic writers, the death and the resurrection of Christ constitutes one radical, holistic, saving event, and not two separate ones that have differing theological implications. 
They are together, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Further, Paul wrote to the Philippians of his desire to know Christ. He said, I want to know Christ. He said, it's all surpassing greatness. But how did he want to know him? He said, I want to know him both in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. One event, one saving event. He assumes that they go hand in hand and that experiencing one The power of his resurrection is impossible without experiencing the fellowship of his sufferings. Because we've looked only to the cross for our salvation and not understood the deep implications of Jesus rising from the dead, we've inadvertently neglected the preaching of it. We've reserved but one day, one day in the spring to get all dressed up. And gather our families to commemorate Christ's resurrection. But, but when we got to that day, what we've done is we've focused on the ridiculous, cutesy symbolism of fluffy bunnies and pastel painted eggs instead of celebrating it as the day of the greatest deliverance in history. A day that puts D-Day to shame and the, 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 the treaty that ended the Civil War to shame. It is the day of the greatest deliverance in history. It's the day when the powers of death and hell and sin and the devil and the law were slaughtered once and for all by the appearance of a conquering Savior in unapproachable light. This is the day for those of us who are in Christ. The resurrection should never ever be an annual celebration never but it should have unceasing top of mind awareness causing our hearts to spontaneously explode in worship january through december charles spurgeon said that the neglect of the resurrection and the preaching of it had filtered in to the preaching of his day and because of this the preaching of his day in Victorian London was radically different than that which he found in the apostles, uh, the, the preaching of the apostles found in the book of Acts. The apostles, this is what Spurgeon said. He said the apostles, when they preached, always testified concerning the resurrection of Jesus and the subsequent resurrection of the dead. It appears that the Alpha and Omega of their gospel was the testimony that Jesus died and rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. So Spurgeon said, guess when he said it? 1856. My question to you is, have things improved? Has the state of preaching improved in 2018? How many of our preachers today... How often have I myself been guilty of this? How many of preachers neglect to frame their messages around the truth that Christ is risen? How many best-selling books, not the ones in the bargain bin, the best-selling books at the Christian bookstore are not anchored in the fact that He is risen? How many? What I'd like to do this morning to kind of help you see the great importance of this. I want to, I want to examine some of the, ser- the sermons of one particular apostle, the Apostle Peter from the book of Acts, and see if Spurgeon was right, if it was preached more in their day than in our day. And I'd like to see what truth we can mine out of several of those sermons from Peter and see if we can answer these questions. Does the resurrection matter? And if so, why? 
So let's begin in Acts chapter 2. Now, what I'm going to do, usually I, I just uh, have you look up the scriptures. I've put, in the, the, put the specific passages on the screen, but if you want to look them up, I've got the page numbers up there and the references. So, but we're going to go Acts 2, 3, 4, 5, and 10. So if you want to just grab Acts 2 and start following along with me, you can do that. We begin in Acts 2, where this is what we found. Jesus has now been crucified, resurrected, and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And this is what happens. 120 of Jesus' followers are gathered in an upper room. They're obeying the instructions that Jesus had given them to go to Jerusalem and wait for what he described as the promise of the Father. Well, after a 10-day prayer meeting, they discover what the promise of the Father was. Every one of them, the Bible says, are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they begin speaking in languages that they had never heard before or never learned before. And, And when this attracts the attention of all the crowds that are gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the day of Pentecost... Peter begins to preach to them. And his preaching, in this, in this short message he preaches in Acts chapter 2, focuses on the ministry of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, and the execution of Jesus. Now, what I, need, what I need you to understand is that when he's speaking of these things, those events are, are events that took place about 53 days ago from, from Peter's perspective. These are current events. Everybody would have known about this. Everybody in that crowd would have known about it. And so he's preaching this, and and, and he talks about the the trial, the the execution. But he also repeatedly declares, repeatedly, over and over in that passage, I think I found three or four references to it, he repeatedly declares that God raised Christ from the dead in fulfillment of, of Old Testament scripture. And he even, watch this guys, the, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was not a separate issue either. Peter contextualizes the miracle the crowd had just witnessed in the light of the resurrection. Watch, you may have never noticed this before. Listen, verse 32, Acts 2. This Jesus God raised up, there's the resurrection. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God because of his resurrection and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, watch this, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So the resurrection matters because by it, Jesus has now been exalted to the throne. And there at his place at the right hand of the Father, he has received the Holy Spirit along with the authority to pour him out on his bride, the church, empowering her, empowering his bride with a promise of heavenly power and eternal presence. And that would not be possible if Jesus Christ were still in the grave. Check your neighbor's pulse for me real quick. Because I don't think anybody's hearing what I'm saying in here. I'm saying that had Christ not be risen, you would not have the presence of Christ with you every day in the form of the Holy Spirit. Had Christ not risen, the Holy Spirit would not be your constant companion bringing the very presence of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit with you when you go to work, when you're raising your children, when you're uh, working through your marriage. He would not be there because He would not have been poured out. One of the great benefits, why the resurrection matters, is because because of it, the Holy Spirit's been given to you. Next in Acts 3, Peter and John are used by God to heal a lame man as they're walking into the temple to pray. And after this miracle occurs and people's minds are blown by it, 
they begin to preach Jesus to the crowd. Verse 15 of Acts 3 says this. It says, you killed. He's, once again, he's confronting them about concurrent events in their, in their time and, and place. He said, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. There's the resurrection. And to this we are witnesses. And his name, watch, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now watch. Peter's saying that Jesus, by his death, has not only dealt with sin, but by his resurrection, has dealt with the ongoing effects of sin. Now let that sink in. He's saying Jesus didn't deal with sin by his death, but he's saying that by his resurrection, Jesus has now unleashed power to begin to turn back the tide of the effects of sin. Sickness, disease, etc. By faith... In not just the crucified, but by faith in the resurrected Christ, we have access to these benefits. This miracle, performed by Peter and John, raises a huge stink with the Jewish authorities who thought they had already dealt with the Jesus problem. What? We're coming back to this again? So they arrest Peter and John and they hold them overnight. And when they ask them the next day, they say, What power? By what power have you healed This man, this lame man, Peter's answer to this question is simply priceless. He says in Acts 4, Acts 4 verse 10, he says, Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, here we go again, whom God raised from the dead, by him, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. Hey guys, you had him. He was your Messiah. You killed him. He says this this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter here identifies the risen Lord not only as the one who has the power to heal broken bodies, but as the one who is the only hope of salvation for the souls of men as well. The one they rejected, these leaders that, that had the responsibility, the stewardship of the spiritual health of the nation of Israel, they rejected their Messiah, they crucified Him, and God raised him from death, and exalted him to become the cornerstone of a brand new people of God. A brand new type of of people of God. And they thought they could snuff him out, but now because of the resurrection, now because of the resurrection, the one they sought to kill is, is their only hope of a right relationship with God. It's utterly dependent on Christ now for everyone, even those Pharisees. Well, wouldn't you know it? Even though they let him go, Peter and the rest of the apostles can't stop talking about the risen Christ. They did not learn their lesson. So in Acts chapter 5, we find the whole crew of them arrested, only to be busted out of jail by an angel. How cool is that? Man says, uh-uh, not preaching in Jesus, we're locking up. Angel says, uh-uh, I'm letting you out. So they get out, and they didn't go into hiding. They didn't, they didn't join the uh, uh, apostolic witness protection program. What they did was, when the authorities find them preaching, get this, in the temple, wide open space, the very next day, they're once more dragged in to account for themselves, and Peter once again speaks up. 
Watch this. Acts chapter 5, verse 30. He says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. You think Peter was serious about this resurrection stuff? The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Now watch. What is he saying there? Because of his resurrection, Jesus is not only declared to be the savior, but he is Israel's savior. Now watch. Watch. Why is that important? Because Israel already thought they had multiple saviors. They thought they had the law to be their savior. They thought they had the temple to be their savior. They thought they had the sacrifices to be their savior. At times in their history, they thought they had an earthly king or a judge to be their savior. But now Jesus is saying, I'm the only savior of Israel. And what does that speak to you? I don't know if there's any Israelites here today. Most of us are Gentiles. What does that speak to you? This is what you take home from that. It is Jesus who will sovereignly grant repentance and forgiveness to those who believe in his name. And by so doing, he will free all people everywhere from every other religious system and obligation. You are obligated to no system, to no God, to no sacrifice, sacrificial system, no idol that you have to you know, throw sacrifices to. You are now the, uh, coming to the one and the only one who can grant forgiveness through repentance to you. Lastly, in Acts chapter 10, God uses Peter to do something that had been long prophesied would happen. And it's the proclamation of God's good news to those outside of Israel, the Gentiles. A godly Roman officer named Cornelius has had a vision of an angel telling him to send for Peter so that he might preach the gospel to him. God gives Peter a divine dream as well to prepare him to go and do what he, as a good Jew, would not otherwise do. And that was visit a Gentile's home. That was absolutely forbidden for him to do that. He couldn't go visit a Gentile's home. But that God gives him this dream to explain that, that he can do that and that God's actually directing him to do that. And when Peter arrives, he's amazed as he hears what has transpired on Cornelius' side of this equation. And he preaches the fullness of God's word to him and his entire household. And this is what he says in verse 39 of Acts 10. He says, And we are witnesses of all that Jesus did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Watch verse 40. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And watch. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. By the resurrection of Jesus... We, the church, the people of God, are commissioned. Paul, uh, Peter uses the, the word commanded to preach the gospel as Christ's witnesses testifying to his kingly authority. Uh, what I'm saying to you is, if Jesus were not risen, there would be no reason for you to preach. Jesus to be a great guy. Listen, Abraham Lincoln was a great guy. I do not go to work every day to preach the gospel of Abraham Lincoln. It's a lot of nice guys. But if Jesus is not risen, there's no call, there's no command, there's no obligation to preach in his name. But because he's risen, we've been commissioned, we've been commanded to preach the gospel. We testify to his kingly authority. For Peter, this meant expanding the message of the gospel of the kingdom to include the once despised 
Gentiles. And so my question to you is, as someone who believes in Christ and his resurrection, where do you need to expand the message of his kingdom? Who is it at work in your neighborhood, in your family, that, the, that, the, the, that maybe once or maybe currently is despised that God is calling you to go and expand that message and, 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 and press out the, the reach of the borders of the kingdom of God? You have that call and that commission because of the resurrection of Christ. Okay, one last truth to be revealed about the meaning of the resurrection. Let's shift our attention away from Peter to another apostle, Paul. Paul had written a letter to the church at Corinth um, to correct a whole slew of doctrinal misunderstandings and practical missteps. They were really, had a lot of stuff they had to work through. And one of those things that he addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 arises when several of the people of the church are saying that, yes, Although Jesus saves us, and yes, although he gives us meaning in this life, there's no resurrection of the dead awaiting us at the end. And Paul begins that chapter by asserting that they had been taught a gospel that includes both the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. He finds that the thought of being a Christian, as I said at the beginning of this message, without firm belief in the resurrection is an absolute absurdity, is what Paul says. How can we be saved... Paul postulates, if the grave has not been conquered. How can we have meaning in this life if only to dust shall we return? That would be a pretty weak and meaningless salvation, would it not? Wouldn't it? But Paul goes on to say that the Christian life, minus the hope of the resurrection, is a horrible, miserable existence. There's nothing great, there's no... Trumpets to be blown about a Christian life with no resurrection. In fact, it's just plain stupid. Can I be honest with you? If there's not going to be a resurrection at the end of this life, then I'm going to start sleeping in on Sundays. (laughs) Nothing noble about showing up here if there's no hope of a resurrection at the end of it. Paul puts it this way. 1 Corinthians 15, 18, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of most People, we are of all people most to be pitied. He says, man, if there's no resurrection, feel sorry for me because this stinks. But he says that in the clearest possible way that not only has Christ been raised, because Paul had seen him. Paul had seen him raised. He said not only has, Paul, has Christ been raised, but now by his resurrection, Jesus, get this, Jesus is the first fruits of all who die as believers. He's the first fruits. His resurrection was pointing to something. What happened to him is going to happen to you if you're a believer in Christ. First fruits. His meaning is that Christ's resurrection is a promise. When you read, you know, Matthew 28, when you read uh, Luke 24, when you read Mark 16, when you read John 20 and 21, and you read those passages for the rest of your life, don't read them as history. Read them as a promise for your future. Read them as a promise. Because Paul says what happens to him is going to happen to you. If Christ is raised, then we too, most assuredly, actually, historically, will physically rise from the grave. Adding to that glorious truth, he just, I, I want types of bodies will be given when we rise. I, I won't get you to raise your hand, but especially you that are Maybe your hair's turning a little gray and getting a little older. Anybody a little disappointed in your body right now? 
a tad, a little bit. Hey, I'm getting some honest people back there. I'm not going to point you out. I'm a little disappointed. I really, man, I, the, especially before I came to Jesus, I treated this body good, man. I, I gave it everything it wanted. I, I, I coddled it. I protected it. Did everything, never asked it of any discipline or anything. And it just absolutely turned on me. Absolutely turned on me. It's tried to kill me several times. But you know what Paul says? He says, the body that I will have when I rise, he uses these two incredible adjectives. He says that it will be imperishable. (laughs) He says that it'll be incorruptible. And by implication, he's saying that it will be immortal. That clearly means that, now listen to this. Some of you may need to just Shut your eyes for a second and focus on what I'm saying. He's saying that in that future body that you're promised as a believer in Christ, no sickness, none, not a sniffle, not cancer, nothing, no death. Death died when Jesus died. Now, as I said last week, Paul mocks it. Death, where's your sting? Grave. Where's your victory? Futility dies in my new body. I'm never going to just spin my wheels anymore. Futility's over. And sin? No more sin. No more struggle in me to know what is right and not be able to accomplish it. No more struggle in me to desire to please God and not be able to pull it off. No, no, no. Incorruptible, imperishable, immortal. No, no, no. I will rise. And John, in his letter, his first letter, has this incredible promise. He says, when I see him, man, can you imagine what that moment is going to be like? Many of you have lost loved ones and they see him now. And he said, when I see him, I will be like him because I'll see him as he is. We become what we behold. We become just like it. And someday we're going to see the object of our desire and we're going to be transformed to be just like him. So today, we've discovered that the resurrection, according to the Bible, means that we have access to the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, that we have the promise of being saved not only from the power, but from the effects of sin as well. That the risen Christ alone, alone is the only hope of salvation and that his life rescues us from the obligation to religion and the law. And that by his rising, we're commissioned to proclaim his good news authoritatively and to expand the reach of his kingdom. But most of all, we see that because he lives, because he lives, we can rest in the promise that death truly has no power over us. And that we will one day rise just like he did to join him forever. Does the resurrection matter? I had a line here, you tell me, but I guess you just did. Does the resurrection matter? One closing thought, I promise, this is it. 
This is the landing strip. I can see it. I'm coming down. Have you ever noticed that the crucifixion alone had no positive effect on the apostles? Think about it. The fact that Jesus had been killed had no positive effect on the apostles. None whatsoever. Think about it. They scattered in fear when the soldiers just arrested Jesus. Peter hung out on the edges and even denied he knew the Lord three times during that awful night before Jesus' crucifixion. All of the disciples, except for John, uh, were gone. Nobody was present at his cross. Nobody was. Most of them hid behind locked doors after the death of Jesus for fear of the Jews. And some of them, like Thomas, even went completely AWOL. Thank God for the death of Jesus. Telling you about itself, the death of Jesus holds no power. That's why when you come into this building, you don't see a big cross with an emaciated statue of Jesus hanging on it. Because that death means nothing unless the, the cross is empty. Unless that tomb is vacant, who cares that he died? But he did die, and he did rise, and he did ascend, and now he sits at power at Christ's right hand. And oh, when they saw the risen Christ, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, look what happened. Peter became the de facto leader of the church. He preached the first gospel sermon to a huge crowd. Thousands came to know Jesus. All of them, every single one of them, these cowards behind locked doors, every single one of them were arrested and beaten. And most of them, except for John again, were horribly martyred. But not one of them, not one of them recanted their testimony that they had seen the risen Lord. Not one. They had seen a once dead, now alive, sin and death conquering Savior. And it took more than Christ's death to accomplish that transformation in them. It took his rising from the dead. So what effect... I asked you, does the resurrection matter? Here's the question, making it all real. What effect is the resurrection of the Lord having on you? Are you those who have only seen his death and are hiding behind closed doors? Or is the resurrection of Jesus Christ transforming you? From a coward to a lion. What is the resurrection doing in you? Does it matter? Does it matter, not just theologically, but folks, does it matter to you personally that Jesus rose? I'll read to you once more 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Everyone bow your heads, close your eyes. I want to talk to you for a minute. This is not magical. Preachers do this a lot, but I I don't want to create an atmosphere. I just want you to be alone with God. I don't want you to be distracted by anything else happening in this room. So close your eyes, bow your heads. Two types of people I want to talk to this morning. There are those of you, and you know it, and you've fought it, you've denied it. There are those of you who have never, ever placed your trust in Jesus Christ. Or your life is so wishy-washy and such a sham that you are not, have no assurance, no, even though you might have prayed a prayer, even though you might have thought something, you know, if you are honest with yourself, you are not following Christ today. And this isn't about law keeping, it's about trust. Who do you trust to save you? 
You, your own best thinking, your talents, your skills, your money, or, or Jesus alone. He alone is the cornerstone. There is no other name given under heaven whereby men might be saved except Jesus Christ. And if that's you this morning, may I please urgently, beggingly invite you to put your trust in Jesus Christ this morning. May I invite you. Would you do me a favor? And if you want to, if you say, man, this is ridiculous. I'm so tired of fighting the Holy Spirit as he pulls on my heart and draws me to Jesus. If this is you, would you just, no one's looking around, just me. I'm the only one looking around right now. Would you just slip up a hand and say, Mark, I'm tired of playing games. I've got to have some help. I need to come to Jesus. Thank you. I see that hand. Is there anybody else? Come on. Come on. Today's your day. Today's your day. You can be free. You can follow Jesus. And the power of the resurrection can be yours. Anyone else? Come on. If you're fighting in your heart, you know God's talking to you. You don't got to try to figure out, well, maybe it's me, maybe it's not, maybe I did something before, maybe. Listen, if there is a struggle going on in you, God is calling your name right now. Who else? Who else wants to come and know the Savior right now? Who else? I'm inviting you. Man, the door is wide open. The table is spread before you. You can be free from the power of sin and death and, and come to know the Savior, Jesus Christ. Who else? Raise your hand up high so I can see it. Come on. Come on. All right, here's what I want from you. I need something. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna have you come down. I'm not gonna do any kind of you know make you do any kind of spiritual calisthenics. Here's what I want from you. I want you to right now. Don't delay this. Uh, just so we can talk to you. You cannot do this on your own. You will never make it on your own. So I want you right now. If you raise your hand, if you meant business with God, I want you to take one of those white cards in the seat in front of you, and I want you to write on there somehow that I'll know. Uh, that, that you accepted Jesus or that you want to accept Jesus and, and check that you want to talk to a pastor. And then at the end of the service, I want you to just simply put it in that black offering box back at the back of the room here. And I will call you this week, I promise. And we'll get with you and we'll, we'll help you know what to do next. But, but if you're serious, if you're really serious about surrendering your life to Jesus, do that right now now. Do it right now. Don't delay. Now, I said there are two groups of people I want to talk to. There's others of you that know that you have just neglected um, the resurrection. You've grown cold and you've you've lived um, without power and without purpose and and really with maybe a little uh, uh, shame of your of who you are in Christ and things. And and you want that same resurrection power that came on the apostles after they'd seen the resurrected Christ to come in you. If that's you, will you just raise your hand real quick and let me pray for you? And you, you're saying, man, I, wanna, I want things to change today. I want to be someone who is, a, who is a, a witness of the risen Christ. Would you raise your hand and let me pray for you? Come on, I know there's more than that. Come on, come on. Let's, let's, let's change the course of our life today. Who else? Who else? Raise that hand up. Come on. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, will you awaken us to this truth, Lord God. God, that this is not an Easter truth, Lord God. God, this is a life-changing, God, beaten, arrested, go to the martyr's death like the apostles. Uh, God, if that's what it takes, Lord God, this, this, and that's not something we have, to, we have to do. When we see the living Christ, God, we'll be the first to volunteer for it. 
And so God, help us, Lord God, to, to, to put away our idols and to put away the things that have distracted us from you and to follow the living Christ. God, we need your help. We need your help, Jesus. God, just like you did in the, in the days between your uh, ascension and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, will you just show yourself alive by many infallible proofs, Lord God, and change our lives by it. We thank you, Jesus, for your goodness, your mercy, your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.